Do you like sports? Do you like art? What about science? Giraffes? Giraffe scientists that paint rugby games? It's all available on Audible, the biggest audiobook site with the largest selection of audiobooks this side of the inner solar system. No need to use your boring old eyes anymore. The ears are the future, my friend. Why, you're using them right now. So check out Audible and get your listen on. Go to www.readlearnlivepodcast.com slash audible to start your 30-day free trial today. Aside from everything else that the kaiju are in the book, of course, they are a metaphor for, you know, pandemic. Of course, they are a metaphor for COVID. Of course, they are a metaphor for how do we deal with these things that don't actually care about us and yet can crush us. Hello and welcome to Read, Learn, Live, the podcast about improving yourself through literature. I am your acclaimed host, John Monaster, and I'd like to welcome you to episode 95. As always, if you have ideas for books you'd like to see featured or of authors you want to put me in touch with, you can reach me at jon at readlearnlivepodcast.com. Today, I'm delighted to have the opportunity to speak with author John Scalzi about his new book, The Kaiju Preservation Society. John Scalzi is the New York Times bestselling author of Old Man's War, The Collapsing Empire, and Red Shirts, the latter of which won the Hugo Award for Best Novel. His short stories have been adapted for the Netflix animated series Love, Death, and Robots. He's known across the internet for his horrific burritos. I hope you enjoy the conversation as much as I did. All right. Well, hello, everyone, and welcome to this episode of the Read, Learn, Live podcast. I'm very excited today to be joined by my very special guest, John Scalzi. John, welcome to the show. Thank you. It's good to be very and special. <laughs> That's right. Uh, we're here to talk about your book today, The Kaiju Preservation Society. Uh, I'm really excited about it. I got a chance to read it. Uh, when is it coming out again? It's going to come out on March 15th. All right, March 15th. So mark your calendars. Available for pre-order now, I'm sure. Uh, but John, just tell us a little bit about the book before we dive into things. What's it all about? Uh, the way that I've been describing it to people is it's about uh, friendships and science and nuclear explosions and, mm -hmm. of course, large monsters. And I think that pretty much covers it. The idea is uh, Jamie, uh, who works at a tech startup, is laid off uh, and at their lowest point is uh, offered a job with a mysterious uh, animal rights organization. And it turns out to be the animals that they are uh, looking after are a hundred meter large kaiju. Uh, on an alternate earth. And so uh, there's just a whole lot of places you can go with that. And I think I went to about at least 63% of those places. <laughs> Very mathematical. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Great premise, I think, to, to kick off with. Um, so yeah, I always like to unwind a little bit and learn a little bit more about kind of the, you and sure. uh, your process and everything. And, and then I think we can turn a little and talk a little bit about the book because there was, there was a lot that happened. In yeah. that book. Um, but I was doing a little bit of research beforehand and I, and I saw this article you wrote on Audible about how, uh, you know, audiobooks actually made you change the way you wrote because of the way that you hear your dialogue yeah. being spoken, uh, which was super interesting to me. Uh, so I'm just curious to know, like, is there anything else like that? Or how else do you feel like your writing style has sort of evolved over the years since you're, you know, you've been writing dozens of books now? It's really sort of interesting. Um, I think that one of the things that has been useful for me is that when I finally started writing novels, um, I was in my mid thirties um, mm -hmm. and I had been writing professionally for a number of years. Um, so when the first book came out, which was Old Man's War uh, in 2005, it was pretty much hitting the ground running. It wasn't like, this is a book when I wrote when I was 19 and I was still figuring out how to do things. Um, and then in the uh, almost 20 years since, um, the, uh, the 
basic design of the books and the stories and the delivery system of, of how I write stories has stayed fairly constant. What has improved, I think, over time uh, has been things like knowing where the beats are, knowing mm. uh, where to end a chapter or to begin a chapter or to proceed people through a story, um, how to make it not feel like it's completely on a rail. Because if you read Old Man's War, uh, which again was the first novel I had published, it's very episodic. You know, mm -hmm. this happens in chapter one and then this happens in chapter two and then this happens in chapter three. Short story, short story, short story, each in their own chapter and it adds up to a story. Whereas these days, uh, you know, plot lines and story arcs and stuff like that get smeared over the entire course of a book. So structurally, I think that that has changed. But I do think the consistency of the tone of my work uh, and sort of the experience of the work has pretty much stayed the same. And so it's been kind of, it's been a good thing in the sense of, um, I feel that people who come to a John Scalzi book have a reasonably good chance of knowing what they're getting before they, you know, pop the lid, so to speak. Mm -hmm. On the other hand, if you don't like Old Man's War or any other one of my books, the chances are really, really good that the other ones will frustrate you as well. So, you know, you sort of, you, you sort of take your chances on having a, uh, a style and tone that is very recognizable. Yeah, I think that's fair. I think it's a fair trade-off. You know, one thing, yeah, you're talking about sort of having a more serialized, serialized style in Old Man's War. It seems like a lot of old science fiction was written that way, and that's because it got published not as a book originally, sure. right? You know, it was published in, you know, uh, Asimov's Amazing Stories, you know, whatever other uh, uh, things, and it was serialized, and that's kind of where the genre got built up from. And do you feel like yeah. that's at all kind of the connection you felt when you were first writing? No, I don't. I mean, but I think you are correct that basically what you had was you would have a whole bunch of these short stories and then a publisher would say, hey, make them into a book. And that was, they were literally called fix-ups, right? That was yeah. the term. Uh, and they would just, you know, uh, tweak the uh, story just enough that it all sort of uh, connected together. I wasn't, when I was writing Old Man's War, I wasn't going to, I wish I could say, I'm going to write in the style of a fix-up and it's going to be a delightful callback to the, <laughs> the times before because uh, it absolutely was not. I mean, what it was, was it was the second time that I attempted to write a novel and writing episodically was easier. And mm. uh, and it's fine. You know, it's not sort of a, uh, I mean, the fact that you see that uh, and the fact that it harkens back to you, to that to you uh, makes me happy and I will totally take credit for it. But <laughs> good. In point, of, in point of fact, it was more about my limitations as a writer at the time than it was uh, an intentional device. And by the same token, I mean, there's a reason why when I, when I was describing Old Man's War to people uh, before they knew who I was and what I was doing, I would always describe it as starship troopers with old people. Right, uh -huh. uh, because it what is a sales pitch. It's a very easy sales pitch, <laughs> um, and but it is also very intentionally by design. Right, it's sort mm -hmm. of uh, it's like Heinlein uh, had this particular formula, uh, and it worked out really well for him. And I'm starting off. I'm gonna take Heinlein's formula, and I acknowledge that in the acknowledgments of the book, because if I didn't, I would have every single nerd in the world going, you know, it's a lot like Starship Troopers. And I'm like, yes, yes, absolutely it is. Right. But I also feel that that's perfectly fine. I mean, it's the the old thing of the Beatles started off as a Chuck Berry cover band, you know, mm. and, ten, and then 10 years later, they were doing Sgt. Pepper's. I am not the Beatles. I do not wish to <laughs> suggest that I am either you know, John or Paul or George or even Ringo. But mm. um, it's, I think that that's a natural progression for creative people. You start off um, taking a lot of uh, tools and stylistic tricks from the people you admire. And over that's the right. course of time, uh, you develop your own, uh, you develop your own style, uh, which may converge manifestly from pr uh, earlier stuff or may continue in the same groove, but it becomes your own. Yeah, that's right. I mean, no art is done in a vacuum. Right. So makes sense. Um, so the other thing I thought very interesting, you know, at the end of the book, you have your acknowledgments. And, sure. you know, most times it's just sort of like, here are all the great people that helped me out along the way. But you kind of told a story there, which um, I thought was really interesting, you know, about your process even a little bit to get to this book, you know, and how you 
essentially started a totally different book. And then the pandemic happened and a million other things happened. You know, it was, a, it was quite a year, as you as you put it. And, you know, so you describe this this book as more of a pop song than this other work, which you described as like a brooding symphony. Yeah. Uh, which I thought was very an interesting way to think about, you know, a novel, for example. Sure. So I'm just curious to know a little bit more about that, you know, in terms of the the split for you. How did writing kind of this pop song help you? You know, why was that a, an important thing to do at that moment? And how could that then help, you know, you be able to pivot and think about the brooding symphonies? Sure. Well, I mean, one of the things to to begin, I mean, my acknowledgments are often in the course of, you know, when I write the book and then I do the acknowledgments, my acknowledgments are often sort of process statements, like how did I get mm. to this, this place? Um, so if you go through them, Maybe when I'm dead, someone will do a, a master's thesis on the right. acknowledgments of John Scalzi and his writing process. I'm, I'm giving that to you uh, for free, master's thesis seekers. Uh, <laughs> but in this particular case, it was absolutely true. I was trying to write a different book in 2020. Uh, and it was and the pitch line for that was Das Boot in Space, right? Uh, mm. That was uh, you know where I was going with that. And if you've ever seen Das Boot, or you know anything about it? Uh, it's a it was a World War II film about life on a German submarine, uh, and uh, you know while they're being chased around in the waves by you know by the Allies and stuff like that, and it's not particularly cheerful, and it doesn't necessarily uh, go well for everybody. And that was kind yeah. of the thing I was trying to trying to go for and trying to do. But it turns out. Um, a dark and broody uh, sort of depressing thriller in space um, was not um, the right thing to write in 2020 because 2020, the world of 2020, uh, yeah. you know, aside from the pandemic, aside from political unrest here in the United States and besides riots and everything else that was going on and all of it impinging on my own consciousness um, because it's not, you know, I'm pretty good at, you know, not being distracted when I need to be uh, mm -hmm. focused, but there was just no way I could focus for that entire year. Um, and so when it came to uh, when it came to it, and I just couldn't finish that one novel, um, you know, and I had to tell my uh, editor, I was like, look, I can't do it. And he totally got it. He, you know, he had experienced 2020 for himself. Um, I went and I took a shower and I was like relieved on one hand that I didn't have to write this book, but it was also, oh, hell, this is the first time I'm not going to be able to hit a deadline, which mm. as a former journalist is really, you know, a statement, right? Right. You know, because, Scary. As, yeah. because as a journalist, you always hit your deadlines. Um, and as I'm standing there in the shower, my brain is my, you know, brain was like, oh, hey, now that you're not stressing yourself out about this thing that you were never actually ever going to finish. I've been thinking about kaiju here and like yeah. literally the whole story <laughs> just downloaded into my brain. Uh, wow. And I was amazed that, you know, my brain, my brain knew I was in trouble. Right. And was just like, well, while he's having his year long panic attack over here, I'll just, you know, put these pieces together over here. Uh, and, um, and it was literally the complete, uh, I don't, you know, a 180 from where I was uh, before. Uh, mm -hmm. Kaiju Preservation Society is many things, but it is not dark and brooding. You know, it is light. It is uh, comic. It has some really exciting adventure set pieces and so on and so forth. And it was just an absolute joy to write because after struggling for months and months and months for a better part of the year trying to do this other story, mm -hmm. having this story like come so easily. Like I had gotten onto email with Patrick, my editor, and I was like, hey, remember how I blew that deadline? Give me six weeks and I'll have a novel for you, right? And wow. yeah. and I, and I, I didn't do it in six weeks. I did it in five. So, you know, even better because it was just yeah. so easy. And, uh, and I think part of it was also because I wasn't trying to write The Brooding Symphony. I was like, screw it. I'm going to have fun with this. I need to have fun with this after the year that I've had and literally everybody else has had you know, mm -hmm. uh, we, we kind of all need this. Now, once I got it in and sent it off, I was wondering to myself, it's sort of like, oh, you know, in 2022, will this sort of like, uh, you know, uh, <laughs> release still be relevant? But then it turns out 2021, while better than 2020, <laughs> um, you, I mean, while stepping right. over we're that. Not, we're not out of the woods. 
yeah, stepping over that low bar was still not, you know, the world's best year. So I think people are ready for something that isn't like, you know, here's something dark and brooding. It's like, uh, why? Right, right. And instead they get something that's it's like, look, monsters. Yay, yeah, monsters. Yeah. We love monsters. So that's where right. I'm at with that. No, it sounds good. It's an interesting point you make. Um, it's kind of often one I make when I talk about the fact that I like, uh, I tend to enjoy utopias a lot of times more than dystopias. And sure. I feel like dystopias, you know, are good and interesting. They're very easy to write and they're very prolific in science fiction, I feel like. And uh, sometimes I feel like, yeah, our, our, our existing world is, is trending, you know, a little bit in a dystopic way. Sure, well, sometimes sure. it's fun to think about utopia and how like how could this look if everything goes right and everything goes well and things are okay yeah and so i, I appreciate this novel for that similar tenor of like hey can we wrap this up and you know make sure things work out in the end and all that kind yeah, of yeah. stuff. yeah well no and i mean i think uh you know one of the reasons why uh the romance genre is the engine of publishing right mm. like literally 40 percent of sales or something like that um is that as a genre, it promises that happy ending, right? No matter mm -hmm. what is going on with the world, you know, uh, there's the kiss, there's the hug, there's the wedding, there's the whatever, there's the happy ending, right? Yeah. Um, and I don't think it's a weakness um, for people in their entertainment and in their, you know, as a respite from the rest of the world to be like, you know what, I need a happy ending right now, right? It's just, it's not a... It's not a, an admission of, you know, anything other than the rest of the world is a trash fire. And I would like to see something that's not a trash fire, please. Right. Yeah. Uh, and I think, again, you know, for me, writing it, you know, knowing that it was going to come to, you know, a, a reasonably satisfying conclusion for the characters um, really sort of carried me through uh, in a way that the other novel that I was working on would not have, because that novel mm -hmm. would not have necessarily come through to a, you know, happy ending for its folks, because that it wasn't that kind of novel. Right. Um, and so, I mean, it's essentially what we're talking about here is escapism, right? Yeah. You know, what yeah. are you escaping from? Where are you escaping to? Uh, and uh, again, for entertainment purposes and for the purposes of being uh, the idea that your uh, reading can occasionally be restorative uh, and mm -hmm. not merely an exhibition of the complexity of your mind or something like that, um, then this is a uh, this is what that is. And again, that's why I was comparing it to a pop song, right? You yeah, know, like totally. A pop song is not going to be you know it's going to have three chords it's going to have a catchy chorus it's going to have a hook that just recycles in your brain over and over and over, <laughs> and over. is it going to be beethoven's ninth symphony no it is not going to be beethoven's right. symphony but it's not supposed to be but it's not supposed to be and for those three minutes where you are singing along in your car to this ridiculous three minute song you're happy because you're like whoa i get to escape um right. that was and that was the intent yeah no Hit it, hit it right in the nail. Bing. All right, well, let, let's <laughs> let's hop in the book there. Um, so let's just check in on our on our hero here at the beginning of the book, right? You, you you briefly mentioned Jamie, and I think it's useful to check in on sort of where Jamie is um, mentally, even because there there's a change, right? That all the crazy situations that happen throughout the book, um, I think, change Jamie in in some form or fashion. So who is Jamie at the beginning? You know, I think Jamie is someone who is searching in, in some sort of yeah. way, right? Because they started off being uh, an academic uh, and were experiencing real FOMO, right? Uh, about what was going on uh, in the rest of the world and whether uh, they're pursuing uh, academia, which is, I don't know, how much you know about academia, but it's not exactly a happy time in that particular field of place, particularly with employment. You know, yeah. it's like you, you're seeing your peers move on and do all these other sorts of things and really does make you think about, well, what I've been working towards, is this the thing that I actually want? And I think with regard to Jamie, um, I don't know that 
the tech startup uh, where we begin at the beginning of the book is what they really, really want, right? Yeah. But it's something else, right? And something different uh, and all the accoutrement of tech startup, right? Uh, mm -hmm. Just seems really, really cool, you know? Um, and so, uh, and without giving spoilers for the book, it, it doesn't all go well for Jamie there. Um, and so again, they are uh, confronted with what do they really want? How are they going to, how are they going to get it? What uh, is, what is next for them? And yeah. the thing that falls into the lap is not necessarily something that they would have wanted or expected, but the circumstances of the time and the situation uh, make it almost a lifeline. Um, and I think that that is an intriguing place to really have the meat of the story begin. Like, right. you've been through this and you know that it wasn't what you wanted anymore. Now you, and then you did this and it didn't work out particularly well for you. What's next? And off we go uh, into another adventure where we find if this is actually a good fit for Jamie or not. Yeah, and I think that's very relatable, right? That's very a very normal thing. I, well, I think for a great many people, uh, uh, nobody immediately moves from college into exactly what they want and they do it forever. Sure. You know, there are there are some people like that, like my dad, public defender. He went he went straight and has been doing that forever, and good for him. But right. for a lot of people, I think they hop around. They're trying to figure things out, and it's it's not easy, you know. So right. I think yeah, to your point, it is interesting to to think about how people react in a situation given their history right well not only that but sometimes the choices aren't yours to make i mean yeah. um the I mean, the thing about uh jamie being laid off from tech i mean there's not anybody in tech who essentially hasn't been laid off right <laughs> at some point I mean, yeah. it is it is a it is a thing that happens it's like come on we're all gonna we're all gonna be you know stuck billionaires and then it turns out no <laughs> only like four people are going to be the stock billionaires the rest of you get laid off thanks hugs yeah. for everybody you're still yeah. cool you know let's go have drinks at applebee's <laughs> right um so you know eventually jamie joins in right mm -hmm. and uh you know one thing i noticed when jamie and kind of everyone else involved first get to this base yeah. and they see sort of a induction ceremony or, or a ceremony to transfer power. Sure. And Peter's a lot of hooting and hollering and similar later on in the book, there's sort of uh, our heroes get inducted into the orders, sort of some silly awards and stuff. And yeah. again, it's clear that this is like a very close knit family sure. know, of people. And it, it really struck me that there was a lot of ritual involved here. Mm -hmm. and I'm just curious to know about, you know, why why you felt that was important in terms of writing into the story. Like how important ritual is to these types of groups? Well, I mean, I think part of it is also um, if you are in a group and, and not to put a sinister aspect on it, but if you're in a group where it's relatively few people uh, and you can't really talk about what you're doing with other folks, um, then you have to do a lot of community building, right? Mm, um, yeah. And that can be, can end up being sort of sinister as in, hi, welcome to the cult, right? Um, <laughs> yeah. But it doesn't have to be that. I mean, well, uh, one of the things that happens in the book is a straight rip from what happens uh, at uh, Antarctic bases. Like, you know, every mm. time, every time uh, the uh, overwinter uh, people at the Antarctic bases uh, say goodbye to everybody else who is leaving. Uh, the, one of the first things they do is they all get together and they have a screen of the thing, right? Um, mm. You know, which is kind of a, an ironic thing to have uh, a screen yeah. of all things considered, but that's a part of the reason why they do it to the same yeah. uh, extent when they arrive uh, at the base, uh, they, you know, they watch Godzilla, right? Uh, you know the same sort of same sort of concept, and it is that sort of um, it is that sort of community building thing that you have to do anytime you have a small group, and we see it no matter what. I mean, I went to a 
uh, private boarding school where mm -hmm. the class, each class, you know, uh, each class year was like 60 people, right? Uh, and it's too small to really click out, right? I mean, you did have your jocks and you did have your, you know, theater kids and all that sort of stuff, but the theater kids also played soccer and the jocks mm -hmm. were spear carrier number two and all that sort of stuff. The mix and match, um, everybody had to be in everybody's business, right? Yeah. And when that, and, and so the dynamic of those small communities and the things that you do to, you know, uh, make it livable um, for the majority of the people uh, yeah. is, you know, uh, are, are important things. And so absolutely, they are going to have, you know, the transfer of power ceremony. They are going to have the let's watch, you know, this movie and snark about it. Let's definitely <laughs> have these celebrations, any point that we can have celebrations. That's right. Because what else? I mean, because the alternative to that is, you are here for months and months with people that you might otherwise not have any sort of uh, community uh, uh, things in common with, but mm -hmm. you have to rely on each other anyway. You might as well make friends. Yeah, fair. It's a good way to approach uh, most situations, I think. Sure. You might, you might as well make friends. Might as well make um, friends. <laughs> so you mentioned Godzilla, right? And yeah. you know, I think Godzilla is sort of the the original kaiju film um yeah. from, from what my research said but you know this idea of kaiju as being these larger than life monsters that were created um within japanese cinema and kind of godzilla being one of the first not the first and you know what i read a little bit about is that often these are metaphors for something else right yeah. and so godzilla was sort of a metaphor for nuclear weapons like hey if we weren't careful we're gonna get you know destroyed here mm -hmm. so is that something that you took in mind here, like was were kaiju designed to be their own metaphor for something, or was it like a throwback to what Japanese films were doing, or kind of how did you come up with using them, using that word and using them specifically? Sure. Well, I mean, um, I think kaiju as a word has crossed over, right? I mean, mm -hmm. most people under the age of fifty, I would say, as a fifty-two-year-old man, um, have some idea what a kaiju is, right? Um, which is important because if you're going to name your book the Kaiju Preservation Society, you sort of hope that people get the concept. Um, so I think that um, in terms of it's a readily available concept to a whole bunch of people who aren't necessarily nerds, right? You know, anybody who's seen Pacific Rim, you know, will mm -hmm. know uh, what a, a kaiju is and Pacific Rim is not necessarily limited to just a nerd audience. You know, it's like your grandparents have seen, uh, you know, Pacific Rim because it's on HBO Max or wherever it is. <laughs> yeah. um, and so uh, I think that mattered. I think also it's absolutely true that um, kaiju over the course of years, particularly in Japan, um, have been metaphor, have been you know, uh, these things that stand in for other things. For me, um, I think it's pretty clear in the reading of this book and not in a negative way, um, but this is a COVID novel, right? It mm -hmm. literally takes place between March, 2020 and March, 2021. Uh, and it is in many ways a novel about people coping with this monster that they don't have any control over right mm, yeah. um and so if you know that and if you know you know when it was written not only when it was written but the court you know the timeline of the story and all that sort of stuff aside from everything else that the kaiju are in the book of course they are a metaphor for you know pandemic of course they are a metaphor mm. for covid of course they are a metaphor for how do we deal with these things that don't actually care about us and yet can crush us, right? Because mm. the yeah. COVID virus is not, doesn't, COVID care, virus doesn't care about your politics, doesn't care, you know, who you are, doesn't care what you ate last night, doesn't care if you're a good person. Uh, if you give it an opportunity to infect you, it absolutely will do it. And, and then yeah. who knows what's going to happen. Uh, in the same That's way, right. you know, the Kaiju don't, don't really think about us at all. 
right? We are literally beneath, beneath their consideration. And yet, um, what they are and how they exist in the world has a huge effect on what is going on in the course of the book. And of course, you know, the occasional human who's like, oh no, we can totally work with this and I have plans, you know, it's like, <laughs> well, okay, we'll see how that one works out. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, so I want to go back to one thing you mentioned kind of earlier on when you were talking about, you know, sort of the the fun that is the book. And and one thing you mentioned is that it is kind of a fun book. And, and I think I think so. And I think that's uh, in large part because the characters are engaged with one another. And to your point, that it's about relationships and friendships. And so there's this constant like bantering, I think, yes. going on between the characters and the dialogue is very snappy and witty. And, you know, they're constantly calling each other out and, you know, and all that in, in the way that friends do. But at the same time, they're like solving big problems, you know, and sure. re resolving huge issues as that are coming up with them. They're, right. they're coming towards them. So I guess I'm curious to know about kind of striking that balance, right, where you want to you wanted to make an entertaining, fun book. So you want people to have, you know, great dialogue and the, the characters to get to know one another and all that. But at the same time. You know, you, there's a lot of science in the book and, and yeah. you know, discussion about and, the, and we, everyone, everyone else besides Jamie is, you know, a full fledged scientist with their doctorate. And, you know, so how do you find that balance between kind of keeping the plot moving forward, making it not just like an info dump and also keeping the, the banter good enough for the readers to enjoy? Right. Um, I think part of it is that a part of it is just the fact that I tell so much of the story in dialogue and mm -hmm. uh, and understanding what dialogue is. I mean, dialogue is meant to imitate speech, but it is actually an exposition device, right? You know, mm -hmm. uh, it's how you can convey information. Now, in science fiction, we actually have a phrase for when this is done poorly, which is, as you know, Bob, right? <laughs> yeah. Like, I'm about to tell you something that you know, but I have to say it out loud because... Right. There for are people, our readers. Yeah, for our yeah. readers. Uh, and so when you're doing dialogue, one of the things that you absolutely want to be able to do is have the thing where it is, um, where you get all the advantages of, as you know, Bob, uh, mm -hmm. without the penalty of making it sound like it's doing what it's doing. And that's mm -hmm. where the, the balance comes. And for me, there's a couple of ways to manage that one, um, simply the fact that I've been doing this for decades now, right? You know, yeah. that certainly helps. Um, <laughs> but the other thing is there is a reason why Jamie, although not uninformed, not unintelligent, um, is not uh, a scientist, right? So that when the discussion is being had, um, they can ask the questions that are reasonably uh, answered. The other thing is, is that all the scientists are uh, not, they're not generic scientists, right? They're not, you know, uh, one is a physicist, one is a mm -hmm. geologist, one is a biologist, and they talk to each other about their specialities, right? Because yes. that's what they would do. And all of the sure. people have a certain level of understanding that so they, you know, don't have to go into uh, things. But um, anybody who has ever listened to scientists talk know that they love to talk about their thing, right? Yeah, because, because right. you know, how often do you get to talk about your thing to, you know, to anybody? Uh, <laughs> so, uh, so that I think kind of helps a lot. Um, now that, you know, there is a flip side to doing a lot of dialogue, which is that people are sometimes like, oh, why do you have to do so much dialogue? And why are you all, why are all your characters witty? Why are they, you know, they can't all be snappy and sarcastic. And I'm like, in the real world, you're 110% correct. We can't all be uh, snappy and uh, witty and on point all the time. Um, but this is, but this is literally a novel. I'm not going to put in the ums and the ahs. And I'm right. not, you know, I'm not going to have a huge uh, thing where someone's just going to like, you know, do a, a side that is not relevant like we would do in, in real life. Because one, um, that would be frustrating. And two, my editor would be like, why did you put that in? What's that? <laughs> yeah. Because says this is not going anywhere. Um, so the, you know, the, again, as you say, it's the balance of being able to, make it sound realistic enough that people aren't thrown out of it, 
Um, mm-hmm. But at the same time, absolutely doing what you need to do for the uh, the course of the book. I mean, it does also help that, like I said, everybody here, everybody in uh, the at the base uh, in this book, everybody is uh, super educated. Everybody has uh, an understanding of science. Everybody has the common language of science and what it's like to be a scientist. So mm-hmm. that common ground allows me to not have to uh, deal with, um, you know, the repercussions of trying to explain things to someone who is not a scientist or so on, so on. unless I specifically drag them into the narrative, uh, as I do in a couple of places, uh, and, you know, again, for, for reasons. But this is what you do when you write novels. You stack the deck, sure. your advantage as a writer. And every once in a while, someone will be like, well, I don't like how you stack that deck. And I'm like, I totally get that, and I understand that. And so I'm probably not the writer for you because this is how I stack. But yeah. um, for everybody who does like your stacking skills, they'll be like, this is stacked excellently. <laughs> Keep going. <laughs> right, right. No, that's a good point, I think, and and probably why, uh, similar to why it's like we never see people going to the bathroom in Star Trek, right? right. I mean, it's just like that point that, yes, this is obviously not 100% representational of the way that people live their lives. We show the most interesting, exciting parts right. that, you know, we want to pay attention to because that's what grips us in terms of uh, entertainment. So, right. So. Well, and that and also the simple fact of the matter is, you know, as much as... Uh, you know, as much as we like to think about the the artistic aspect of what we do, there's also there's also other considerations. Like I have to write a book that is longer than, say, like seventy five thousand words, but not more than like one hundred twenty thousand words. It's like literally in my contract that the that the book shall be a specific length, plus or minus ten percent. Right? Huh. Yeah. Yeah. And this is not something that, you know, uh, that people think about when they pick up a book, you know, it's like, why is, why is the book this length? It's that way because that's what I agreed to, uh, deliver in exchange for money. Uh, yes. uh, And this is also someone earning a living. Right. Exactly. And so this is the, you know, and these are the little things that, that happen, you know, people will be like novels are longer than they used to be like, you know, in the forties and fifties. And it's like, well, that's because of the way that novels are distributed now, as opposed to the way they were uh, back in the day. And people don't recognize it. I think, you know, because they don't have to, they don't care. Right. Yeah. But as a writer, if you're going to try to sell to a mainstream publisher, um, these are things that you have to be aware of. Even if you're in uh, self-publishing, right, um, and publishing on Amazon's Kindle Unlimited or whatever, they have a specific, you know, they have specific things where they're like, it has to be this length. And if it's more than that, then the amount that you get for it is less or, you know, things like that. Or so probably there, if you want to be ranked high enough on search or, you know, there's, there's all this right. stuff, levers they can pull to make you do things. Right. So. And it's, and it, you know, and it's, and it's not like, you know, it's, you know, some sort of cabal in the background being like, you know, Haha, we're going to mess with the writers. It's more of, this is what we've learned actually sells the most and we want to sell a whole lot. And we you probably do too. So. <laughs> right. Let's all work go. together here. Let's yeah. all work together as a team and make money for everybody, but mostly us, but a little bit for you. It's fine. Fair. Uh, kind of without giving anything away, I was curious about, you know, this knowing that, you know, kind of our heroes had to flout authority and under the cover of darkness mount a rescue mission. And it made me think about, you know, whether I would do something like that in their position and, you know, how how we think about that, right? We're, we're sort of trained to obey authority and uh, it can't, it's not easy to make those decisions. And so, just curious to learn a little bit about how like our heroes made those decisions and then, you know, how, how best to think about when it's okay to, to kind of push back or when it's okay or when we shouldn't maybe. Right. Well, I mean, I think one of the things is not just important to think you're right about something because we all think we're right about things, right? You know, the thing that's actually important is when you decide that a course of action is necessary um, that you're willing to accept the consequences of that, whatever the consequences might be. And 
I think that this is one of the things that uh, our characters actually have, have to grapple with is what does uh, doing what they think is the correct thing, um, what will the ramifications be, uh, what's the best case scenario, what's the worst case scenario, uh, what does this mean for them, um, is this, you know, is this trip absolutely necessary, uh, and so on and so forth, right? Um, and I think that that's an important thing to model in a story, not only the idea of, you know, do the right thing, because we all have been told to do the right thing. But the question is, you know, if you're going to do the right thing, are you going to accept um, all the consequences, positive and negative, that will come from uh, doing this, this one particular thing? Um, and so uh, with that, you know, again, uh, we're telling a story, so, uh, and this particular story um, is, is one where, uh, you know, the, you know, the apprehension of their own, uh, you know, uh, moral stand on particular things is going to go uh, in a particular way. Be the, yeah. you know, that said, um, there's no reason why you couldn't tell a good and interesting story uh, that goes off in, in a different direction. It's just not the one that I told. Mm -hmm. No, fair. Um, and so I, I want to, you know, kind of at the end of all of this, think about who Jamie became, right? Because I mentioned at the beginning, you know, mm -hmm. Jamie was in a very specific place and we talked a little, about, a little bit about what's that, what that's like when, you know, you're kind of jumping from one thing to another and trying to figure something mm -hmm. out. And so, you know, how... How did they change by the end of the book? Who is Jamie by the time this kind of wraps up? Right. Well, I think that, uh, one, I don't want to give too much away for everybody yeah. to read this, but I think one of the things that is important is Jamie has found their place. They've found a community and they've found a purpose that they think is actually useful, right? Um, and, uh, and I think that that's actually... A, a really good character arc, right? Of mm -hmm. part of how we discover who we are is we discover uh, who we are to others and how we can be useful to them and, and how we can be useful to uh, a community, so to speak. Um, and I think that that's actually uh, a good path for people to follow. And it is not also something that I think is particularly deep on my part. I mean, mm -hmm. uh, if you go through um, a lot of enter entertainment, particularly entertainment that is addressed to nerds, um, there's a lot of uh, a lot of uh, weight given to found family, so to speak, right? Mm. Um, and, you know, every time uh, you know, you have uh, one of those movies where like, that's what families do, you know, you're like, <laughs> oh, yeah, nerd wrote this one. Uh, <laughs> yeah. but, but I don't think that there's anything wrong with that. And I do think, you know, um, the presentation to that and how you get to that point is what makes that interesting rather than necessarily the idea that you build a community over time. Um, and so what I'm certainly hoping is uh, for the folks who do read Kaiser Preservation Society, that they find the course of that development in the story uh, intriguing enough. Yeah. Um, cool. Let's uh, let's kind of wrap it up here. Sure. Is there anything else that you wanted to t talk about or touch on, or you hoped people might get out of the book or think about? Uh, so it's like, no, I, I only want them to deal with it on a very surface level. You know, one <laughs> of the things that's actually really interesting for me is not, uh, is not me trying to make the point to people what they should get out of the book. What has mm. always been interesting to me as an author, um, is getting back from people what they have gotten out of it, which are not necessarily the things that I would think that people get out of things. Uh, out of things right. that I've written. Um, it is a reminder, um, quite frankly, that um, the writing of a book is only half of the experience of the book. The other experience of the book is the reading of the book. And everybody has their own life experience and everybody brings in their own, uh, you know, 
life experience into that reading. And so um, I very, I don't want to say I very intentionally don't, you know, say I want people to focus on one thing or did you catch this or did you do this or whatever. Um, but I will say that what I love is getting back from uh, readers things that I didn't know uh, would be important to them about a book or that would be um, something that I kind of just put in there as a as an aside or as a you know just a momentary comment or something but which really sort of pings off of them um, mm -hmm. this is actually kind of the most fun thing about being an author you know and sometimes it can be the thing of someone's like i have this idea about your book and how it connects to all the other books that you've ever written and <laughs> all these sorts of things and you're like this is a theory that has no basis in the text but okay right you know not everything that people bring into the book are going to be things that i i think are there um but yeah. you know fundamentally every reading of the book makes a new head canon that's why it's called head canon it's what's going on in your head um and you have to accept that that's just part of the thing about writing books am i beholden to how other people uh, approach the book no i'm going to continue to do what i'm going to continue to do but it doesn't mean that i don't like uh, the the fact that what their life experience brings to the book um, makes it different from what my own life experience is uh, brought to the book, even in the writing of it itself. So, uh, yeah. so the answer to your question is no, there's nothing more I want to say. What I want now is to people for people to read it and tell me uh, what they got out of it. Hopefully, hopefully at the base of it, they had a good time with it. That is the thing that I really wanted. You know, right. but if they get something more or there's something else that they see or there's something that they appreciate that, you know, um, then I'm looking forward to hearing about what it is that that thing might be. Sounds great to me. Sure. All right. Well, let's uh, let's wrap it up. I always like to do a thunder round, ask some quick getting to know you questions, and then we'll uh, call it a day. Sounds okay. good. Fire away. All right. What's your favorite food and or drink? Uh, well, I mean, the drink is pretty easy. Coke Zero. I drink an inadvisable amount of the stuff. <laughs> I honestly yeah. don't know why I don't uh, already have kidney stones the size of a Volvo. But, uh, <laughs> you know, I'm just going to accept that. As far as my favorite food, um, I think the internet would tell you that there it's burritos. But I don't mm. think that's an appropriate thing to say because burritos encompass so many things uh it's like literally whatever filling you want inside of the burrito uh yeah. i say that i like pie but again you have the same problem there are so many different types of pie um i will say um two things uh pecan pie uh mm. and pepperoni pizza probably those are the two things which you know i don't want to say you know i could live on pepperoni pie and pecan, uh, you know, pepperoni pizza and pecan pie and Coke Zero, because what a sad and lifeless existence that would be. <laughs> but on the other hand, I do really like all of those things. And, and it would take a lot for me to get tired of each of those individually. Okay, fair enough. Second question, where's your favorite place you've ever been? Honestly, I really like being home. I mean, that sounds <laughs> like really sort of a, uh, a mealy mouth answer, but let me explain it. Um, mm -hmm. not counting the last two years where we've all been trapped inside. Um, I do so much traveling, like, like at least a, a week, a month has been elsewhere. And this next yeah. month is a perfect example of that. I'm actually going, uh, starting travel this week. Uh, I'm out to California for a personal trip. And then I'm on a cruise where I'm doing some work. It's the Joko cruise and I'm doing, mm -hmm. I'm a performer on that. I get back, I have literally one day at home um, and then I'm on tour for 10 days. And uh, then I have maybe a, a week at home and then I go off to another event. So from next Thursday to um, the first weekend of April, I am home a grand total of maybe nine days, right? Wow. Yeah. And so, 
and I love actually traveling. I'm going to be on a book tour. I actually get to do a book tour where I get to see humans. You know, please be vaccinated and boosted when you come. But, you know, uh, as far as it goes, I'm happy that I get to be out with people and see people and travel and all that sort of stuff. But when I am done, I want to be home, right? I want to be home yeah. and I want to spend time with my wife and my daughter and our pets and literally see no one else because I'm going to be so peopled out by the end of it. <laughs> right. I'm a functional, yeah. I'm a functional introvert, which means that I do extrovert really, really well up until a certain point where I want everybody to die in a fire. Um, and uh, <laughs> yeah. so, yeah, when I get home, it's just absolutely my favorite place to be because all my favorite uh, humans and animals are there uh, and I can just do nothing and not feel bad about it. Well, there you go. Good answer. Okay, last question. If you could wave a magic wand and change any one thing, what would it be and why? Oh, I mean, the scope of this question makes me feel nervous uh, <laughs> because if it's completely unlimited, I'd be like, uh, let's solve bigotry and wave the mm. wand uh, because that would be awesome. Um, but if it's limited to only personal things and it has to be something that affects me personally, um, I think I would probably want to be less of an unintentional jackass. Uh, mm. You know, the thing that everybody has where you like you do something and you don't really realize that what you've just done is obnoxious until like like three days later where you're like, oh, wow, I was the jerk there. Or, uh, you know, or you've said something and you immediately kind of wish you could shove it right back into your brain. Um, so yes, on a personal level, being a, a uh, more considered better person would be great. Uh, on a larger scope, bigotry, it sucks. Let's end it. All right. I like both those answers. Thank you. Uh <laughs> Uh, well, this has been an awesome conversation. Thank you so much for taking the time and uh, getting uh, giving us a little bit of insight into you, into the book. Um, for those, for everyone listening, if you haven't had a chance to figure this out, you should check this book out because it is the pop song that we need right now. Um, so, John Scalzi, thanks again for being on the show. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Thanks so much for listening to this episode of Read, Learn, Live. If you liked it, tell a friend and subscribe on iTunes and Google Play. If you hated it, tell a friend and subscribe on iTunes and Google Play. And so it goes. Mm -hmm.